Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm here with Akash Pound and Steve O'Neill. Welcome, Akash. Hi there. Welcome, Steve. Hello. Akash, we have left the European Union. What's different and what happens now? We have finally left. Took a bit of a while to get here. Um, what is different? Well, of course, legally speaking, nothing fundamental changed um, in the UK um, as a result of, of, our, of our exit on the 31st of January because we've now entered straight into the transition period. So for citizens, for businesses, for people traveling to the EU, um, they won't see anything different at this at this point. Um, we now enter into the negotiations over the future relationship with the EU, the trade deal and so on. Um, and then perhaps we will face another uh, set of big crunch deadlines later in the year. But for now, we are out. And I think, you know, psychologically, that was a big moment for the country. Um, but nothing really has changed yet to, to coin the old Theresa May line. So politics has kind of gone back to normal again a bit. Brexit, other than the, the day of leaving, barely gets mentioned. It's not so much on the in the news, in the papers, um, the withdrawal agreement, for example, seemed to pass with barely a squeak. Are we back to ministers briefing against each other and um, not resigning and slating each other in public? Is this the new normal or things return, Steve? Um, I think we're waiting to see. I know we're going to go on to discuss how the new government's doing uh, later. But um, for me, I feel like in a little bit of twilight zone, we've sort of had Brexit done, we've had this new government, I think a lot of people are sort of uh, switched off from politics and just adjusting. We're going to find out, I think, eventually, when issues start coming up again, what the response is. And is it more like, you say, that kind of most people aren't watching normal politics as it was a few years ago, or is it this more febrile politics we've had? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the big thing that's now different is, of course, the government actually has a not just a working majority, a, a hefty, um, sizable majority in the House of Commons. So all that drama we've had in Westminster over the past uh, couple of years since, since Theresa May lost her majority, basically, in, in, in 2017, that's all come to an end, at least as far as the House of Commons is concerned. I mean, maybe there will be still some action in the House of Lords. The government did lose, I think, five votes on the withdrawal agreement bill in the Lords. Um, but then when it came to it, um, the Commons simply overturned all those defeats and, and the Lords backed down, which is what quite often happens. So um, we will now see a government that, for the most part, is going to get its way and, and can't actually um, shift the blame or shift accountability if, if things go wrong, which I think the previous, uh, the previous government was able to do sometimes. And the first majority, single-party majority government in the best part of a decade really, which is a bit of a, a change from our politics, but back to business as normal. Yeah, back to back to what we had come to come, come, come to uh, see as the norm for a few decades, um, basically under the under the Thatcher and Major and, and, and then Blair governments. Uh, but then yeah we had this this period of, of, of coalitions and minorities and small small majorities, but that's all over now. Sorry, Akash. The government has taken a decision about Huawei. There is talk of other decisions around HS2, a digital services tax, and the response to the Soleimani incident. How should government actually go about taking 
these decisions and deciding on these issues? And where's the sort of centre ground on some of these decisions and the decision-making process? Well, I mean, those decisions you mentioned, uh, some of them have been taken. I mean, they've, they've had to respond to, uh, to, to certain events. That's, that's true. Um, but I think what we've actually seen is this government was elected on a fairly thin manifesto. You know, it was, it was light on, on policy detail. Um, they deliberately didn't want to tie themselves down too much before the election. Um, they're now in with this big majority, and I think we're in a phase whereby they are. Um, there's a lot of work going on in government, preparing for some of these big decisions to be to be taken. And we're going to see a budget. We're going to see a, a government reshuffle, and new ministers coming in with their own agenda. We're going to see white papers and so on in in, in some key areas. Um, but at the moment, I think it's more a matter of the government kind of establishing what some of its key priorities and, and, and themes are rather than taking lots of uh, big decisions about, about these key areas. So in terms of the actual decisions, so we had, we've moved on to some extent from the, let's call it indecisiveness perhaps, on dithering delay of um, Theresa May. So for example, some of these big infrastructure decisions have been knocking around for years. Is it just having a stonking great majority that means that the government, the cabinet, prime minister, whoever sort of can lead on these, is that why a decision has been taken around Huawei and that there's talk of some of these other decisions being made? Is it just because they've got a great big majority? Well, I think, yeah, Brexit the last couple of years was a period not only because of the absence of a majority, that, that was one key issue, but more generally in which lots of these big decisions simply were put off because so much political and, and uh, governmental energy was just swallowed up by the big Brexit black hole. Um, and as you say, yeah, HS2, third runway, you know, these are things that have been talked about for um, a decade and more and governments have, have just found ways of, of postponing it. But now, uh, particularly on, on, in that kind of area, I mean, this government clearly is going to announce a big set of investment decisions, national infrastructure strategy. They've got money to play with more than, than previous uh, administrations have, have had because of the healthier state of the public finances. Um, but they don't want to rush these decisions. Um, you know, that, where there's a lot of money at stake. I mean, HS2 is now uh, forecast to cost sort of over 100 billion. And it's a difficult, it's a difficult uh, set of trade-offs they've got because the government wants to demonstrate its commitment to um, levelling up, as, as they say, to investing in, in, in the north and, and you know, regions away from London. Um, but is, is HS2 actually good value for money? It's, it's, a bit, uh, it's a bit less clear now that the price tag has gone up so much. Steve? I'm just thinking about this, and a lot of the kind of punditry around the government at the moment is that we're all quite desperate to fill in a kind of interpretation of what character the government's going to have, where it's going to go on various things. And some of these decisions are actually not that telling of that kind of thing. So on Huawei, on HS2, these are actually fairly managerial decisions, things where the individual ministers might just look at the merits of the case. And it might be as much about the person making the decision about any kind of greater political or ideological trend. So I think it's a temptation to overread it sometimes. Maybe we're going to have to wait and see. 
Okay, well, we've talked about rail, so let's segue into Northern Rail, has been nationalised. South Eastern is apparently going to be part devolved to Transport for London, it was reported in the Times. So are we starting to see a domestic agenda emerge? I think Northern Rail is being, being uh, nationalised is a good example of the government having to, feeling it had to respond to what was seen as a, as a real crisis of, of performance and um, high levels of, of dissatisfaction in the North. Um, so yes, you know, Grant Shapps did, did announce that nationalisation. Whether, but whether you can um, view that as part of a fundamentally different approach by the government, I'm not sure. I mean, it might be that that was just a one-off decision. Um, Southeastern will wait and see. I think there's a discussion about whether it should be devolved to TfL. I don't know that the decision's been taken. Um, I think what we can see though, and yeah, Northern Rail does fit within that, um, is this government is going to be more willing to, to intervene in the economy. I mean, it's going to have uh, a big infrastructure strategy. As mentioned, there is a desire to really prioritise um, regional growth, you know, in underperforming regions. And I think, you know, that, that, that the, all the signs are is that there is going to be a more sort of activist government role. Um, in, in driving economic growth, perhaps more than the old sort of Thatcherite Conservative Party would have been comfortable with. I suppose that to some extent with the reshuffle upcoming, there's something of a holding pattern while we wait to see what those new ministers bring to the table in terms of their priorities. There's also, we talked about domestic policy, but something that sits on the cusp of domestic and international policy is the union. So what prospects for the union longer term? Well, there's been a few opinion polls just in the last few days that I think really highlight the, um, the scale of the challenge that this government now faces in, in holding the union together. So um, we already saw over the course of 2019 rising support for independence. Um, there was then, of course, the very strong SNP performance in the election and then just in the last uh, few days um, there's been three polls that have had a yes vote for independence ahead or yes and no kind of at level pegging so I think the government really has a challenge on its hands in persuading the Scottish people um, that their best interests lie within uh, within the UK because there's a lot of voters who voted um, no to independence in 2014 in large part on the basis that that was the way to ensure Scotland's membership of the EU and obviously the calculation is so different now that the polling data does show um, a chunk of that vote switching over to, to the yes column so that's a big, big problem for them. So what is global Britain if we can't keep its own country together? I think at the moment it's a nice slogan more than anything else. Um, I mean, the, the just yesterday, so on the 3rd of February, um, Boris Johnson gave his big speech down in Greenwich, um, kicking off the, the, the trade negotiations with the EU. Um, and I think in that you could start to hear the way that he wants 
the government to at least to be seen in, in its approach to the wider world. So he was very much uh, talking about Britain as a, a, a pro-free uh, trade um, leader. If in, in historically, you know, Britain was a sort of leader of free trade back in nineteenth and, and early twentieth century, and he talked about Britain kind of re uh, retaking that leadership role in the international economy. Whether that's credible or not, I don't know. But he was very critical of protectionists in uh, in Brussels and in Washington and elsewhere in the world, um, and talked quite a talked quite a big game actually um, of Britain as this um, open economy ready, ready to do deals with with you know not just our neighbors in the EU but the Commonwealth America China and so on um, so that's certainly the sort of rhetoric there's a lot of work certainly to be done as they as they start the detailed negotiations with, with various countries and, and most importantly with the EU itself. Well, Steve, there's budget upcoming. There's a promise to focus on things like skills and further education. However, it's still not really clear how much of a real break from austerity this will be. And it seems that some departments outside of the election spending pledges have been forced to find quite substantial savings. Was austerity ever more than rhetoric? Um, austerity was more than rhetoric, but ending it, I'm not sure if it was. And of course, there were lots of pledges during the election campaign about things like more police officers, um, the endlessly debated numbers of more nurses we were going to get. Um, uh, in terms of whether uh, austerity is ending or not, I mean, what we've seen recently from uh, Shabby Javid, the Chancellor, is talk of departments that aren't protected having 5% cuts. And this reminds me of um, a lot of austerity under Cameron and Osborne, which was where, while the sort of most of the political talk and most of the discussions around the amount uh, or the size of the state, what actually happened was you had some areas that were protected and other areas that were really drastically cut. And what's going to happen now in many of these areas that are going to be asked to find 5% savings potentially, is they're the same areas like the government, like the criminal justice system, we've had really, really bad cuts already. So for certain areas of public spending, it's going to feel like uh, austerity has continued and got worse. But we have seen, it, um, as you mentioned, areas like skills and FE and policing, uh, promises of spending. Um, so I wonder whether the end of austerity is more of a mute music thing rather than a small print thing. Um, and also, I think voters may end up being somewhat confused by this because we kind of have been talking about end of austerity for ages, um, and yet it kind of is half ending and half not. I mean, one area that I think is worth mentioning is local government, given the commitment to sort of levelling up to infrastructure, to investing beyond London and South East. It seems a case of very warm words, but very cold budget cuts. Yeah, I mean, local government has, has faced the deepest cuts in any, in any part of, uh, of the public sector um, over the past decade and some minor reforms to, um, to business rates, retention and things like that, for example, which has been talked about for a few years, is, is not going to fill the hole that local government faces. I feel, I feel more, I should give you a clearer answer. I'm going to say austerity is not finished, and I think the criteria for austerity finishing should be across the board, even if modest budget raises, and right now we're still talking about cuts, so I'm afraid I'm going to say austerity is continuing. It's given that we've talked about a 
period of possible devolution around transport, Northern Rail, Southern Rail. Um, it seems a little bit contradictory to me to be saying on one hand that government, local government or what we, maybe not necessarily what we understand the local government, but sub-national government, whether that's combined authorities, talk of it, uh, the West Midlands may be getting some power over sort of transport. But at the same time, that tier and the tiers below it are having their capacity downgraded and removed. It seems to me that that's a um, possibly an unwise but certainly contradictory policy. I would think. Yeah, yeah, and there's lots of areas. I mean, you mentioned local government, of course, local government delivers deliver social care, and we yet to find the funding solution for social care. We know that's been a difficulty for ages. It's only going to get worse. People are only going to be older and need care for longer. Um, and so, until some of these funding things are sorted out, and also kind of the structure and where the money's coming from, uh, I think we're going to be talking about this a lot more. Well, the talk, we talked of decisions earlier on, and there's been talk of decisions and decisive action and movement and progress on social care for quite some time now but we haven't actually got anywhere I don't think, have we? It's another one of those big issues that successive governments have recognised as as of of fundamental importance but um, ultimately the politics have been just so toxic actually Um, Theresa May's 2017 um, election campaign and manifesto obviously combusted over that issue and back in the you know dying days of the Labour government there were attempts to find a consensus on it but then the new coalition came in and, and kind of refused to, to, to push through what was seen as necessary reforms so it's a, it's a, not a good story that as far as um, effectiveness of government in this UK is in this country is concerned because no. they've just put off the necessary decisions year after year. And I think the, po- the politics is actually a very good point that Labour's proposals towards the sort of dying days, as you say, of that government were derided by the Conservatives as a death tax there in order to get short-term political gain and then not do anything about it themselves because it was seen as too much trouble. So politicians in their short-termist way have just kicked it into the wrong grass. So that's far too much trouble. Someone else will come along and deal with that. That said, there's no excuse now because now you've got a majority or a big majority. You can deal with these things. Mm. It's whether they've got the appetite to. Indeed, absolutely. Right. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you very much, Akash. Thank you. Thank you. Right.